Well, I um, this is just a huge treat for me to be here, and uh, I feel like um, I know some of you already because I've seen you or met you at other conferences, and then sometimes there's just, I just look at people and I think, oh, this is my friend, and I've never met you yet, but you just look like my friend, and I'm ready to talk to you. And um, I have, I've done that about five times last night already, where it's like, oh, I just need to sit and talk to her some more. Uh, so I'm sure you all feel that way when you come here, and you, you don't know everybody, but you just look at each other's faces, and it's like, oh, What's her story? I would just love to just find out what the Lord has done and how He has worked in her life. And so when I get in a room like this, that's, I just look forward to heaven because that's what I want to do. I just want to hear what has the Lord done for your soul? I want to know that all the things that He has done for you. And it's just such a treat to be here. So hopefully you can have some of those conversations with each other while you're all squished in against the side. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to be teaching on uh, unmet expectations. Wendy, you know, had we had talked about this and this is uh, what she thought would be fun and so i have written a book on unmet expectations and really everything that i write always comes from just my own quiet times it's just what the lord is working on in my heart and life and unmet expectations was actually a topic that started uh, for me about 12 almost 15 years ago, and it was in response to one of the pastors of our church said, could you please teach on unmet expectations? It would really lower the counseling load for all of us pastors. And so I was thinking, sure, I, you know, I, I can deal with unmet expectations. And um, But what I discovered is as I started kind of just even thinking on the idea of, well, when do I have unmet expectations and when is that going to show up? And then it just turned into this huge book that I ended up writing. And um, what I'm going to be sharing today is more. It's not in the book because the we don't stop with unmet expectations. So let me just kind of give you a synopsis. So unmet expectations, when I first started coming to this idea, it's where we're, we're just tooling along in life and all of a sudden something comes at us that we don't expect. And it can be a little thing like you're driving to the grocery store with your hubby and it's like, oh, we're going to have just a nice little date time. The kids are at home. They're fine. And and we're just going to go to the grocery store together. Only then you know the fastest way to get to the grocery store. And so you gently just say, you know, if you turn right, right here, it'll be so much faster. But your hubby just says, oh, no, I'm going to go this way. I like this way better. And then in that moment, your little heart says, what? And in that moment, we have a choice, don't we? Is this going to ruin our perfectly wonderful grocery date? Because we're grumbling inside because he had a different plan than we did. Or are we going to say, 
okay. And it's, so it starts, it can be in those little things, or it can be as big with the unmet expectations of, you know, I thought by this time in our lives that the Lord would have done this and he hasn't, or I expected that I would be able to have children and I can't. And the really deep heart things in our lives. But in every case with an unmet expectation where I thought life was going to be this way and now it's not, we have a choice now. How are we going to respond in that? And so I had to spend years studying and working on and writing about that just to work through all of these things for my own heart. And that's how the book ended up going. But I'm still writing on it and I'm still working on it because we're never going to finish up with our unmet expectations until all of our expectations are realized in heaven and we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and see him face to face. So we need to become women who are experts at looking at the situation, and then counseling ourselves, I have a choice now. How am I going to respond in this moment when my feelings are kind of tapped out and they're feeling, I'm feeling kind of um, full of anxiety or maybe I'm feeling angry or I'm bitter about this or I'm despairing and I'm discouraged and I'm depressed. Whatever it is, we have a choice to make. Will I, can I, am I willing to give God glory and take my emotions and apply the word of God to that so I can respond well in this moment? So that's what the book is about, um, the unmet expectations, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, just real quickly, my first book, God's Priorities for Today's Woman, is on uh, Titus 2, 3 through 5. Um, but all both my books, um, I write the chapter and then I put Bible study questions at the end. I've written them so that they're useful for discipleship, for Bible study. Um, it's not enough to just read a chapter. We need to be in the Word. And so I always put Bible study questions at the end. So that's that. And my hubby's book is perfectly wonderful because he is wonderful. <laughs> and I'm super excited to have him here just hanging out with me, which is really neat. Okay, so what we're going to do in uh, this session is we're going to talk about a group of people who got so frozen in their circumstances and that they couldn't imagine life being any different. And I, I, I wanted to spend some time looking on that at this because we can get like this where we get stuck and we, we can't even get our minds to look beyond our circumstances. Our circumstances are so in our face that we can't see beyond it. And we struggle to believe what God 
has given us in his word. And uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at in this first session. And kind of the main theme, so you can kind of have this in your mind too, is that the path to blessing is not necessarily easy. So does that sound like an unmet expectation right there? Oh goodness, doesn't it? So let me open in prayer and then uh, we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for this time, and I thank you for these ladies. I thank you, Lord, that we can start the day um, just being together, but coming together to look in your word, and Lord, to see how you have provided in your word everything we need so that we won't be frozen in place by our circumstances, that we can begin to conceive of new ways of responding because you have provided for us. Lord, we ask that your word would do a mighty work in our hearts, that you would change us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us courage to believe you and to believe your word. And I thank you for this time. Amen. So we're going to be in the book of Exodus, and we're going to be eventually coming into chapter 6, but we're going to start in chapter 4. So if you want to look there, or uh, you can do that. We're going to be in um, Exodus 4, verse 27. And this is, as you know, the when Moses has been called by God to uh, rescue the the nation of Israel, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so, at this point, uh, Moses has been told by the Lord, "I want you to start heading." To Egypt. And uh, at the same time, the Lord had told Aaron, I want you to go meet your brother. And uh, they meet up at Mount Sinai. So Moses has come from Midian and Aaron has come from Egypt and they meet up in at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And uh, we don't know if these brothers have seen each other since Moses left Egypt or not, but it kind of appears in the text that this is the first time they have seen each other in all those years since Moses left um, in fear for his life. And in verse 27... The Lord, it says, the Lord said to Aaron, now go to meet Moses in the wilderness. And he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. This is that reunion of these two brothers. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that God had commanded Moses to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and uh, into Egypt and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he then performed the signs in the sight of the people. And then it says in verse 31 of Exodus 4, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. 
So here, just imagine what this must have been like for the children of Israel. They were suffering in Egypt, and then all of a sudden, here comes Moses, you know, and there's all this gossip going on. Oh, you you know the story of Moses, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And we've got, you know, his family, you know, Miriam and Aaron and his parents, you know, and all. So all this little talk has been going on. And here comes Moses and Aaron. And then they say, God has remembered you. He's seen your affliction. And so verse 31 of Exodus 4 says, the people believed. And they, when they learned that the Lord was concerned, and they bowed low and worshiped the Lord. I mean, how cool is that? to know there's God who has seen their affliction and he remembered them. He was going to take care of them. And it's like, we like this God. He's amazing. He's different than the gods of Egypt. But they still didn't know him. And they didn't know what life was going to be like for them. But all they knew is God had seen them. God was going to rescue them. God was going to take care of them. And so for them, it's like, we're going to worship this God and life is going to be good. The path to blessing is here. But the path to blessing isn't necessarily easy. And then, as you keep looking, chapter 5 opens up, and Exodus 5, 1 through 20, is all about Moses and Aaron going in before Pharaoh. And anybody who's taught children's ministry knows that Pharaoh did not say yes to their request to leave. He said no. And he was actually so offended with Moses and Aaron saying, we want to take our people and go and worship our God and leave Egypt that the Pharaoh made life difficult. He made life super hard. Life was hard already. He made it harder for the Israelites. So almost overnight, the Israelites who had just heard, God's going to rescue you and deliver you. Then all of a sudden, it's harder. It's worse. What happened? And it seemed like their circumstances were contradicting God's promise that he was going to deliver them. Without a doubt, the Israelites needed God's deliverance. Their life was hard. The job was hard. They were oppressed. It was difficult for them. And in their sorrow and desperation, because all their circumstances were even harder now, after God had said he was going to deliver them, that they lash out at Moses and Aaron and blame them for their increased trials and suffering. The Israelites' circumstances seemed to contradict God's promises that he was going to help and deliver them. Sometimes that happens in our lives too, doesn't it? And so for the Israelites, the God who had seemed so wonderful that they had bowed low and worshipped him, and it seemed like, oh, he's going to take care of us, and it's going to be wonderful, because we have all these expectations of what that's going to, deliverance is going to look like. And their circumstances 
seemed to indicate that this God, who they thought was going to bless them, he wasn't blessing them. And so in their hearts and attitudes, the children of Israel moved from that place of worship in Exodus 4, verse 31, to this place of whining and complaining and growing more and more desperate by the end of Exodus 5, verse 21. Their their worship moved to whining when their circumstances changed because their circumstances were not what they had in mind when God said he was going to rescue them. Blessing, they expected, meant easy. How many times do we expect that? God's going to bless me. It's going to be wonderful. Only oftentimes it isn't. And so Moses, for the Israelites, was on the receiving end of their unmet expectations. They blame him. They complain. They are not happy with Moses. And then Moses, in his fear and his disappointment and confusion of what is happening, because he didn't expect this either, then he turns and complains and begins blaming the Lord about his hardships. Moses forgot that the path to blessing is not necessarily easy. And Moses himself then is completely unprepared for the blame being heaped on him because he thought, I, I've been called by God to be your deliverer. I'm going to lead you out of the, the land. We're going to go to the new land that God has set aside for us. And Moses expected, okay, God's going to do it and everybody's going to follow and it's going to be great. But then all of a sudden, he's getting blamed for all the hardship, and they are not seeing him as the hero. And so, Moses, it says in Exodus 5, in verse 22 and 23, Moses turns to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I can't even imagine saying that out loud to the Lord. Can you imagine? But he was distraught, wasn't he? And there are times when we are distraught that we sound just like Moses. The Moses and the people's expectation of how God would deliver them is revealed by their response to the increased um, suffering in their lives. When God said that he intended to deliver them, what did they expect? Well, it's going to be quick. It's going to be great. It's going to be victorious. It's going to be, oh, see ya. Here we go. And they're ready to go. Like, Overnight, I'm packed, I'm ready. And then they waited, and life got harder and harder, and it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Nothing about their present circumstances seemed to indicate that God really was going to deliver them from their miseries. So then they were all just let down. They didn't believe God's promises that he was going to do that. 
And it was their justification for why they couldn't believe his promises and why they wouldn't believe his promises. Now, what's amazing about this passage and what we're looking at here is not how the people responded or how Moses responded, because that's normal. We can relate to that. Um, we, we can understand doing that because we have done that. And we can understand that when things aren't going well, we, we see in our own hearts complaining and grumbling and fussing and fuming and discouragement and all the stuff. Um, But what's amazing about this story is not how the people respond, not how Moses responds, it's how God responds to them. And that brings us to our first point, which is our God is patient with us in our weakness. And now we're in chapter 6, verse 1. And it, we read this, then the Lord said to Moses, after all that fussing and fuming and complaining, and God says this to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go, and under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. What we see here is God's response is so patient, is still so committed to delivering the people. God is so kind. He's so gracious in the face of all this bad response and all these this unbelief in God's promises. God reminds Moses that he is still committed to his original promise, his original plan to rescue his chosen people. And he adds even more explanation to help Moses and the people trust him. And in verse 1 of Exodus 6, we have that word, that one little word, now. Now, Moses, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. When we hear that word, when we read that word now, we know something. We know change is coming. What, when God says now, all of a sudden there's that sense of, oh, what? Because when somebody says now, you know, oh, change. Okay, something. Get ready. You know, get ready. Get your shoes on or brush your teeth because change is coming. Now, when God says that, it indicates now is the time for me to act. Now I am putting my plan into action. Now, in the sovereign plan of God, it is time. One word can communicate all of that. And it reveals to us, as we're looking at Exodus 6.1, God, what God has been watching. He has seen all the injustice. He's seen all the misery. He's seen the hurt and hardship that the children of Israel have been going through. And now is the time for him to do something about it. And he tells them, watch and see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
He says that Pharaoh will be compelled to do what God wants. And even though Pharaoh is unwilling, which is so amazing because Pharaoh had compelled the children of Israel to do everything that he wanted them to do. And God now tells the children of Israel, I'm going to turn the table on Pharaoh and he will be compelled to do what I want him to do. Look at verse 2 of Exodus 6. It says, God spoke further to Moses. And what this tells us is God is going to give even more encouragement. Think about this. Verse 1, we have enough in verse 1 to be encouraged, to just meditate on verse 1. But then God goes on because God wants to be to help us trust Him. In verse 2, it says this, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So this brings us to our our second point, our God desires to strengthen us. God's remedy for our struggles and unbelief about his promises is to give us a greater view of himself. And that's exactly what he does in verses two through five. In verse two, he, he declares, I am the Lord. And in this statement, what he's declaring is everything about himself that would help them trust him, his kingship, his sovereignty, who he is, his power, his eternality is all contained in that one phrase, I am the Lord. In verse three, he says that he appeared to the fathers. He identifies himself as the God who had already interacted with their forefathers, and he he calls to mind by by reminding them, "Look, remember how I treated your fathers and the promises I made to them. I'm the same God." He says, the fathers didn't know me in the way that I am now going to reveal myself to you by this name. And so he, he tells them that it tells Israel, I, I'm going to deal with you in a way that is different even than the fathers knew. So he gives them that extra special little encouragement that this is something special for you all that the, even the fathers never received from me. In verse 4, God says, I made a promise to the fathers to give them their own land. And this promise happened 400 plus years previously. And when God says that I made a promise to give the fathers the land, he's, he's reminding them 400 some years, nothing to God. It's nothing. He made that promise and now is the time for him to fulfill it. 400 years might take a while in God's plan, but when it happens, it is the perfect time. In verse 5, we see this. God reminds the Israelites, I've heard your cries. 
I've seen the injustices that you've had to endure. And this is super encouraging for the, the children of Israel to know God sees. How often do we call out to the Lord and are reminded of that and encouraged? God, you see, right? You see what's going on? And that's exactly how the Lord is encouraging the children of Israel in verse 5. Verse 5 also reminds us, God says he has remembered his covenant that he made with the fathers. And he's, he's reminding the children of Israel, I made a covenant of blessing. And that covenant of blessing with the fathers that happened 400 plus years previously is still in effect. I am still committed to blessing the children of Abraham. And that's you all. And that's what he's telling them in verses two through five. God's blessing doesn't always come along in the easiest way, but it does come because blessing comes with the promises of God. Blessing comes when we know God. Blessing comes when we watch our God do all that he has said he will do. For the Israelites, God's blessing included their suffering. And now it was time for it to end. When he remembers his promise to deliver. Verses 2 through 5, God reminds Moses and the people about who he is. He reminds them about his past promises and his past faithfulness. And this is a pattern for us that we can take and apply in our own hearts and lives when we're discouraged because life isn't turning out the way we thought it would, and life is hard, and we're discouraged, and this is not how I thought it was going to be. We can remember God is faithful. God sees. He knows the circumstances of my life. And the path to blessing, the path to deliverance may not be easy, but God is watching. God is with me, and He can strengthen me in it. This brings us to our third point. Our God goes out of His way to strengthen us. So what we've seen so far in Exodus 6 in from verses 1 through 5 is really enough to strengthen and encourage us in our walks with the Lord, just even as we spend time thinking on these things about the truths about God himself. And yet, what God does next is he gives even more because our God goes out of his way to strengthen us. And that's why we even have the promises of God that we do in the scriptures. God has given us his whole book to strengthen us and help us so that we can respond well when life turns out different than we think it's going to. And in verses six through eight, we find God's step-by-step plan revealed to the children of Israel to help them see what God is going to do so that they will trust him as he delivers them. 
What we see in verses 6 through 8, then, is God's answer to Israelites' unbelief and discouragement over their circumstances. They were discouraged. They didn't think that God was going to deliver them. God says, now I am going to deliver you. And then he describes himself. I am the Lord. I have, um, I am the God of the, your fathers. This is I have remembered my promise. And now in verses 6 through 8, he then tells them, okay, now here's my plan for delivering you. Well, often, don't we want to know those things? Like, can you just tell me how you're going to do it? We love to know the plans. Well, that's exactly what God has done for us here in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, he again says, I am the Lord. And then he gives us eight I will statements. And he says, I will bring you out from under your burdens. Verse six, I will deliver you from your bondage or your slavery. Verse six, I will redeem you. And I will do this with great power and miracles. In verse six, I will take you to be my people. Verse seven, I will be your God. Verse seven, and you will know that I am the Lord your God when you see how I deliver you. And I will bring you to the land that I promised the patriarchs, verse 8. And I will bring you to the land, and then I will give it to you for a possession, verse 8. And then he finishes all these I will statements. I will do this, 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 and this. And then he closes that again with the statement that says, I am the Lord. And that pronouncement enough, I am the Lord, should be enough to seal the deal. But then he filled it all in with all of these things that he's going to do because our God goes out of his way to strengthen us so that we will trust him. God wants the nation of Israel to know him. He wants them to know of his commitment, of his faithfulness, of his power, and of his ability to bring all things to pass. He wants the nation of Israel to be strengthened by this one statement, I am the Lord. And he makes it at the beginning and at the end in verses 6 through 8. When God says, I am am the Lord in the scriptures. It is his statement that sums up everything that he is. Now, what's interesting about this is that the statement, I am the Lord, is used 165 times in the Old Testament alone. God says, over and over and over again in the scriptures, I am the Lord. And every single time it is meant to strengthen us. It is meant to give us a picture of who God is to remind us that he is the mighty, powerful, uh, eternal God who works all things after the counsel of his will. Isaiah 43, 10 through 13 helps us understand even what it means when God says, I am the Lord. This is part of what God has in mind when he says that. Before me, 
there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? When God says, I am the Lord, He wants us to take note and to remember all that that means when He says that. And so, in verses 6 through 8, He begins His little encouragement with, I am the Lord, and He ends it, I am the Lord, to help us remember who He is. And then we can read it. Every time we read it in the 165 times that it's mentioned in the Old Testament alone, that's what needs to come to our mind. You are God, and we can trust you. You have the power, you have the might, the sovereignty, the the eternality, the holiness, the justice, the mercy, the wisdom to order all things, Lord, as you see fit. And that brings us to our fourth point. In spite of God's provision, we can respond with unbelief. (laughs) This is where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? Oh, goodness. So what we see in Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8, is that God had given them multiple verse after verse encouragement to help the nation of Israel get to know Him, to believe Him, to see what God was going to do. He outlined for them. You know, when, you, you can just imagine the, the men coming home and telling their wives, you know, God's going to deliver us. Well, how's He going to do that? And so then they were able to say from verses 6 to 8, God said He will do this, 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 this. So God had given them everything they needed to know about His deliverance. God had provided everything they needed to help them respond with faith and hope and trust. But they didn't do any of those things. In fact, they refused to respond with faith and hope and trust. Look at verse 9. It says, they did not listen to Moses. Their unbelief crippled them and stopped their ears from hearing the life-giving, life-transforming hope that God had imparted to them. Verses 1 through 8, everything you need so you can trust the Lord. Verse 9, they did not listen. I don't know about you, but I see my own heart. God, I'm, we're, we get up in the morning, we're spending time with the Lord, we're reading all those verses, and then something comes up, and where's our, where's our faith, where's our hope, where's our trust in that great God? They did not listen. She did not listen. She would not listen. Verse 9, though, go, explains a little bit more about why they didn't listen. 
They didn't listen to Moses because of their despondency and their cruel bondage. Life was hard for them. They were hurting. They were struggling. And you all know, at least I know, that when I'm hurting and life is hard and I'm in the middle of a trial, sometimes it's really hard to believe God's word, to trust him. And yet, Charles Spurgeon says this, just because life is hard, that's a poor reason for refusing light just because the night is so dark. (laughs) It's too dark outside. Don't send any light to me. I mean, that does not make sense, does it? But that's what we do sometimes. You know, someone comes alongside us and we're, we're a little discouraged. And so our friend comes and puts her arm around us and, and gives us so, the words of life. Psalm 28, 7 says, my heart trusts in him and I am helped. Just trust in the Lord and your heart will be helped. And what do we do? Don't just give a Bible verse to me. That's not enough. And we turn our backs We're doing just like what Spurgeon said. We're refusing light because the night is dark. Spurgeon goes on to say in uh, his sermon on this very text, Do not, therefore, because of the heaviness of your lot, refuse to hear about God, your maker, your benefactor. It's only in that direction that you will have hope. The Israelites expected God to rescue them right after Moses and Aaron told them about him. And yet, when he didn't, and life got even more difficult, they hardened their hearts, and they fell into despair. They were unwilling to imagine rescue in any other way than what they thought. And so, they refused help. And they refused comfort. And they refuse strengthening. And they refuse to believe God's message of hope and deliverance. And instead, they just wrap themselves up in their unbelief. Romans 1.18 says that they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. That's what unbelief is. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, our unbelief. The Israelites actively worked at suppressing the hopeful truth that God had reminded them about in verses 1 through 8. And this can crop up in our lives, too. The Israelites had plenty to convince them that God would deliver them, but they rejected that evidence and the promises of God, and they remained unbelieving. The Israelites didn't believe God when their circumstances were different than they expected. They wouldn't believe God when when he didn't deliver within the time frame that they thought that he should. And they refused to trust God when they were worn out and worn down from their trials. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this text, said, They expected to be free at once, as soon as Moses went to Pharaoh. And when they didn't get immediate relief, they fell back into sullen despair. That's unmet expectations, isn't it? That's exactly in that moment. Okay, so this did not happen, and this is not the way I thought it was going to be. And so I have a choice. Bummed out disbelieving, or am I going to trust 
you, Lord, even when you have not acted yet. You have not delivered yet, but your word says that you will. Will we believe God? <clears throat> it's it's easy to be unbelieving of God's promises, isn't it? I don't know about you. I think I think it's easy. It's natural for us. It's a supernatural act when we believe God. You real, realize that, right? By faith. When we do anything by faith, that is the work of God in our lives. We cannot muster this up. I'm just going to believe God. That's not going to work, is it? That won't, that won't change our hearts. But when we go to the Lord with our unbelief and we ask Him, Lord, help me in my unbelief, then we can move from that place of unbelief to belief. But unbelief can crop up at any time, can't it? When we've lost our job, we've lost our friend, we've lost a loved one, we've lost our keys, and we've lost our favorite recipe. Where did I put that? And we get grumpy inside, and we snap at somebody. We can find it hard to believe God's goodness, even in that. You know, how many times have we said at the end of a day, Lord, will you forgive me for being grumpy? I was grumpy all day long. It just seemed like it was a really hard day. Just one thing after another. That's unbelief, isn't it? I'm not trusting you, Lord, in what you have given me today. Unbelief can show up in our lives like when we are struggling with an area of sin and we say yes again because we're unbelieving that God could help us. When uh, we give way to impatience or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness and we remain in that state, we can find it hard to believe that the Lord will help us to overcome even our sinful responses. Unbelief can crop up at times in our lives, like when um, if we've been betrayed uh, in our marriage or in a friendship, when we've been slandered or hindered or hurt by those that we've trusted, we can find it hard to believe that God would do anything good from those circumstances. Unbelief can show up at any time in our lives, like when things don't go our way, when He doesn't deliver us in the time frame that we thought, when He doesn't rescue us in the way that we thought He would, we can find it hard to believe that God loves me or will do me any good. Not one of us is exempt from unbelief. All of us have been just like the Israelites, where we're unwilling to receive the life-giving, soul-supporting, God-glorifying truths like the ones that God gave Israel. And so if we want to move from unbelief to belief, then we need to remember just a few admonitions from the scriptures. We need to remember that belief is volitional. That means that it's a choice. We need to choose. Am I going to believe God? John 20, 27, Jesus 
is talking with his disciples after his resurrection, and he's in uh, he's meeting up with them again, and he tells Thomas. Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. We see there in Jesus's encouragement to his his disciple, you have to choose to believe. Belief is volitional. So when we are sitting there and we're having our our little time, our little pity parties, our little times of discouragement, and we're sitting there and we realize, Lord, this isn't giving you glory in this moment. But I don't know how to move from this place of anger or frustration or worry or fretting, or despair, then that's when we recognize it has to be by faith. Belief is volitional. We choose. So we start there to begin to believe God's word. Lord, will you help me believe your word? So first, belief is volitional. Next, we need to recognize and just even begin to call unbelief what it is. The scriptures call unbelief evil. We don't call it that. We call it like struggling. I'm just struggling to believe God's promises. But you know what? God calls unbelief evil. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. The author of Hebrews, writing to his friends, says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. (gasps) That's How many of us would think that our unbelief is evil? It's like, no, I'm just kind of struggling a little bit with this. It's just taking me a little while to get my head wrapped around it. Well, well, it's taking us a little while to get our head wrapped around it. Guess what that is? We are living with evil. God sees it that way. And so we need to begin to, when we see unbelief in our hearts, we need to label it what it is. Lord, will you forgive the evil that I am living in right now? This is not honoring to you. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be an evil, unbelieving heart in you, because that will cause you to fall away. You're going to turn away. When we are in unbelief, are we walking in fellowship with the Lord? No. We've, we're, there's a distance between us and the Lord. Verse 13 That's why we need to come alongside and encourage one another day after day. Why? Because we struggle with unbelief every day. And so we want to do that so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Unbelief is deceitful. That's why we we have to even recognize what we need to call it. It's evil to be unbelieving. Sin deceives us. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just struggling to believe God's promises that he's placed here in his word for me to live upon so I can give him glory. If we're going to follow the Lord, then we must take care 
that know unbelief enters into our hearts, that we would ask him for help. So we need to, belief is volitional. Belief is a choice. Lord, help me to choose to believe. And really sometimes it's, Lord, will you please help me to just want to believe you? Because right now, I'm just enjoying my little pity party. I like this little wallowy thing right now. This is comfortable to me. It is comfortable for us to be in a state of unbelief, isn't it? It takes courage to trust the Lord. We get out of where we've been living, and we begin to live the way God wants us to live. Number three, unbelief doesn't profit us. We don't gain anything from being unbelieving. For whatever reason, we think that it's okay and that, that it, it's, it'll help in some, for some reason. And later on in Hebrews chapter 3, just a little bit further down in the passage from where we just were, in verse 19, it says this. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And this is the author of Hebrews referring back to the children of Israel that they weren't able to enter into the promised land because they were unbelieving. They did not believe God's promise. And so then the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering into his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. Now, the author of Hebrews is talking about salvation, but it's also true that even when you know the Lord as Savior, if we are unbelieving, are we entering into the Lord's rest and comfort? No. So it's also true that while a promise remains of entering his rest, we can come short of his promise by our unbelief. Verse 2, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as the children of Israel did, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith with those who heard. Ladies, so often the word we hear doesn't profit us because we're not receiving it by faith. We're not believing it by faith. We're not living upon it by faith. And so we don't enter into the rest and the fellowship and the comfort of God because we are not applying the promises of God by faith in our lives. And so there's no profit in our hearts. The Israelites needed deliverance, and God said that he would deliver them, but they were unwilling to believe him. Most likely, you have an area or two in your life that you you really are praying about, and you're asking the Lord, Lord, would you fix this thing? Would you deliver me in this. I need your help, Lord. We, we all have those areas. So how are we going to respond while we're waiting for the Lord's deliverance? Are we going to be like the Israelites? No, I'm not listening to those the words of faith because you haven't done it yet, Lord. Can we still believe God? Are we willing to 
to believe God even if he hasn't rescued yet. It is God's plan to rescue his children. Psalm 50 verse 15, we have this promise from God. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. That is a promise from God. But does it explain how God's going to rescue you? Does it say when God's going to rescue you? It says, call upon me and I will rescue you and you will honor me. How are we going to respond to that promise? Will we believe God? Will we wait and keep looking for that now? Is it, is it now, Lord? Is now the time that you're going to rescue me? Is it now? Lord, when, when will it be? But I will re- wait upon you. We honor God when we believe him. Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 68, 19 through 20, blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Psalm 74, 12, Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. When your circumstances seem to contradict the promises of God, remember Hebrews 11, 6, and put your trust in the Lord. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You must believe that he is, I am the Lord, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The path to blessing isn't necessarily easy, but God is patient with us in our weakness. He desires to strengthen us with his promises and the faithfulness of his character. He goes out of his way to strengthen us. And he has provided for us in every way. He's given us and preserved his word for us so that we would believe him and believe his word and give him glory in the process. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for using the Israelites to encourage and remind us about our own hearts of unbelief. Father, we want to confess our unbelief to you as evil. Lord, help us to see when we don't believe you or believe your word that it dishonors you. Lord, we long to honor you. We long to give you glory. Please forgive us, Lord. Strengthen us and help us to have the courage to live upon the promises of God. You are the Lord. How glorious you are. Amen.